Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Lucy Hodder, Director of Health Law Programs and Professor of Law at the University of New Hampshire's School of Law and a member of the Institute for Health Policy and Practice in the College of Health and Human Services, also at the University of New Hampshire. With her dual appointment, she both helps train the next generation of attorneys in the state in the application of legal principles to healthcare and works with the Institute on some of the most challenging healthcare problems facing the state today. In this podcast, we explore Lucy's career, a journey that took her back and forth between public service and private practice in several states and regions of the country, including working in the office of the New Hampshire Attorney General, being a senior shareholder in the firm of Rath, Young, and Pignatelli, and finally, before joining the faculty at the University of New Hampshire, serving as the legal counsel to the governor, as well as the senior health policy advisor. I think the thing that struck me most about my interview with Lucy was her commitment to service throughout her career. From the time she was in law school through her time in a high-powered private practice, she made time to provide public service. When the governor asked her to serve as her legal counsel, Lucy's career was in full bloom. She shares the advice she received from Tom Rath, one of the principals in her firm, as he told her, you practice in the New Hampshire bar when a governor asks you to serve. You have to be hard-pressed to say no. That's what we're here for. That's what we do in New Hampshire. When the governor asks you to serve, you should say yes. I think that says a lot about not only Lucy and her firm, but the legal community in New Hampshire. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Lucy Hodder. Welcome to The Forge, Lucy. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. You went to Princeton University and studied politics. Why did you choose Princeton and what is a major in politics like? It's not what I'm familiar with. You know, I have no recollection as to why I chose Princeton. It's where I'd always wanted to go and it was far enough from home that I felt like I could get there um, but was away and I was recruited to row. So that was oh, that was a big part of it. So you were um, an athlete. A, yeah, they had a phenomenal um, team and the women's the women rowers there were standout and fun and welcoming and did you do it so all four years? Really? I did. I was the co-captain of the varsity women's crew and my freshman boat won nationals and so I had a great time. I was a uh, blessed to come a few years after the women had made huge strides with Title IX. So um, we actually had a coach and a locker room. So I really benefited from the women before me. So politics, what was, what was the, why did you choose politics as your major? You know, I basically, I loved constitutional law. I had a constitutional law class in high school. Uh, loved it. In high school, I was, as uh, going into my sophomore year, I was the victim of a pretty harsh crime. And so I just, for whatever reason, it arose sort of a sense of justice and a curiosity about our system in me. And so my senior year, I interned for Judge Rhea Zobel, who was the first woman on the federal bench in the district of, in Boston. So it was in the federal district court there. And she was wonderful. So I got to be in her courtroom. I sat in on this massive patent case she was doing between Kodak and Polaroid. And I wow. organized all her notes. And This was in um, high school? This was in high school. Wow. So that was my senior project. Was um, And she was new to the bench. We started aerobics classes in her in her chambers. I just had a wonderful time with her. So she became a, a bit of a mentor and sort of opened my eyes to practicing law. She'd been the first partner, woman partner at Goodwin Proctor and Hoare. And, you know, so she was a real trailblazer and a phenomenal uh, judge and person. So all so, of those things uh, led me to be curious about politics. And politics was the, was the government major at Princeton. Okay. And okay. I basically opened the course catalog, as I advise all 
you know, college matriculants to do and simply just circled every course that interested me. And it turned out those courses added up to a politics major. So I was able to take history and religion and politics and sociology and philosophy, and they all added up to a politics degree. So, so going into, given your, given your internship, I'm, I'm guessing you probably already kind of knew you might want to go to law school going into undergrad. You know, I, I definitely had a sense of it. And then my senior year, I taught, I went and volunteered in the prison in Trenton and met this guy named Uncle Yuli, who was a, just a, a relentless sort of con, drug dealer, drug user. And we just, you know, I asked him everything about his life. And, and it, it, I, I definitely had a sense of wanting to go out in the world and learn more about justice and, and American politics and uh, the American system. And it was simply a curiosity. I mean, it was just what I wanted to do. It wasn't really intentional as much as that it was just my passion. You earned a JD at Georgetown University Law Center, cum laude. What was it about being an attorney in particular that appealed to you? Because you could have done a number, you could have gone on and done straight academic research on justice studies or something like that. So why, why law school? I really uh, liked the power of the courtroom and the power of the, the judicial process. So I saw that as a way to affect change. My first introduction to law was through the judge's courtroom, and I actually substituted for the filing clerk, her filing clerk, for a period of time. So I, litigation seemed like a natural, natural thing. And at Georgetown, I did, you know, I, my, my memories of law school were not much about the classroom, which I didn't really like or appreciate at the time, <laughs> um, but a lot about everything else that went with it. So I did a number of clinics. I did. I actually did street law clinic, which is a really amazing clinic at Georgetown, where you go and teach sort of basic legal theory and practice around things, torts and commercial law and civil rights, and to either in the classroom for kids, but I taught at Lorton which is the D.C. prison, was a D.C. prison at the time. It's since been closed down. It was in uh, Virginia. It was not racially integrated. And um, I had a big, big classroom, about 40 men from D.C., and taught them street law. And it was just a f- amazing experience. So what, is, what, does, what does street law mean? Maybe well, so the first, you know, the first class we opened up with a question about, you know, if, if you have AIDS. I mean, it was during the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, what, what, what are the sort of ethical questions and the legal questions around whether or not you disclose to someone you might be intimate with? You know, what? And so we talked about that. We talked about writing checks and, and you know, loans and what that meant, commercial obligations. We talked about civil rights. So it, it was a great dialogue. And you were doing this while you were in law school? Yes. Wow. And so then I also did the domestic violence clinic where you actually represent clients with domestic violence petitions. And D.C. was one of the earlier jurisdictions that actually had a domestic violence statute. That was in the very early years that it was recognized. And I, I got to do that. And I was co-chair of the Equal Justice Foundation. So I was responsible for all the speakers in the fall. And so I, it, I really did a lot outside of law school. I worked yeah. for a civil rights attorney who worked on, did uh, desegregation cases. And so I had a lot of fun that way, mostly because the classroom was not something that I really appreciated that much at the time. <laughs> How did you have all the time to do that? I thought law school was one of those things where it's just all-encompassing classroom work. You know, it is, but the, the clinics were part of my classroom work. Okay. And... The jobs I just found both helpful because they helped me pay for law school, uh-huh. and so you made time for them. Okay. In, in what ways did the experience of law school surprise you? I mean, it's kind of one of those things I think that a lot of kind of liberal arts people think, well, I'm not, I'll probably go to law school, and well, only with a vague idea of what that might entail. So when you got there, what kind of was like, oh, this wasn't quite what I expected? You know, I was so uh, sort of philosophical coming out of college, and then I taught for a year in Switzerland that I was, I was much more sort of philosophical about sort of justice in law school, and there were a lot of people who were there to, you know, crank it out and, 
get a job. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to sort of reorient to that. I, I think what I was surprised about is how much I've drawn from what I did in law school f- for my career. It was a really, ultimately a really wonderful experience, especially to be in law school in DC, because we had access to so much um, enrichment through the political community there. So I ultimately loved it. Nice. Uh, so after graduating from Georgetown, you were a clerk for the Honorable Martin L. Feldman in the U.S. District Court in New Orleans, Louisiana. What does it mean to be a law clerk? You hear that phrase. What is that? Mm-hmm. What is that? Being a law clerk is, if I highly recommend it for anybody in law school. Basically, what you are is you are the the drafter and the eyes and ears of the court. So you basically sit in on the motions, you sit in on the arguments, you sit in on the trial, and you prepare all the documents for the judge. And so it gets you right in the middle of everything. And you do all the research, uh, you read the briefs, you draft the opinions. I actually ended up in New Orleans on recommendation from Rhea Zobel, who was the federal judge I'd worked for in Boston. She um, sort of gave me, including herself, a list of judges who had courthouses that were very dynamic, where the law clerks actually didn't just sit off in a distant room, but really participated, because it's a learning experience. Um, And Judge Feldman was sort of renowned. He's a a wonderful man, and he uh, worked at the Federal Judicial Center, so he trained judges. So that's why Rhea Zobel knew him. He also trained a lot of our judges in New Hampshire at the time. And the, one of the things when you apply to work for a judge, to clerk for a judge, you are honor bound, I, I don't know if it's still the same way, to accept an interview and accept a position to any of the judges you apply to if they offer it to you. And he, of course, figured this out. So he'd call, he called first, and I went down to New Orleans, and he offered me a clerkship first. So that's how I ended up in New Orleans. Okay. And it was absolutely wonderful. So the big question here then is, who makes the best beignets? That's <laughs> the best beignets. Well, the best beignets are definitely Cafe Du Monde. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, it is Cafe Du Monde. The best um, po boys are definitely Mothers on Canal. Yeah, great place to eat. I met my husband down there too. Oh, ah, very nice. Yeah. So, what kind of law? What kind of cases came to the district court that you got to see? Was there a, is there a special kind of case that he handled, or you know, we did all kinds of cases, and interestingly, uh, the issue, the cases I remember most were not based on the facts, but based on the law. So there was very, com- and, and especially as a young law clerk, very complicated issues uh, around subject matter jurisdiction and choice of law. Um, we did a lot of Jones Act because it was, and a lot of cases with you know, Stevedore. So there was a lot of maritime. Cases there. It was right after the oil boom, so we did a lot of maritime cases, a lot of civil rights cases, employment cases, because that was just just at the beginning of Title VII. Which is what? Um, Title VII is the anti-discrimination statute in employment, and and sex harassment cases were just beginning to be litigated at that time. So, and then there were criminal cases and your average diversity jurisdiction disputes. So just run-of-the-mill civil cases or tort cases. So there were a couple the big, range. big tort cases that we did, yeah. Hmm. Um, so it was really interesting. Wow. So from New Orleans, you went to San Francisco to work at the firm Borbick, Flager, and Harrison as an associate. What kind of law did you yes, go into I sh- practicing? I sure did. I, you know, it was really hard for me. I had, um, after my, my second summer of law school, I worked at Hale and Door in Boston, where I grew up. And then also had an offer to work at Brobeck. And the decision about whether to stay in Boston, which I knew I should do, or go to San Francisco was a really, really hard one. But I'd always wanted to. I love San Francisco. I'd worked there a couple years in, for summer jobs in law firms out there in college. And I really wanted to see the world a little bit more. Okay. So I ha- had already accepted a job there before I clerked. Oh, all right. So when so I finished they let you clerking, take a year off to do the clerking. Yeah, almost all firms do. They want okay. you to get that experience. Sure. So I was already committed to go to Brobeck. I had met my husband down in New Orleans, and he was going back to Chicago to finish up med school. Oh. So I went to Brobeck and ended up. You know, I, I honestly don't know how I ended up there, but I was sitting. My office was on the same corner of the building 
looking out over the bay uh, at the end of Market Street with the Labor and Employment Group. Um, and oddly enough, the Labor and Employment Group had uh, the only women partners, I think, were in the Labor and Employment Group, or some of the few. And it was actually a very natural fit. Some great, great attorneys there. I learned an incredible amount. They did a huge amount of training. Um, it was right when the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, the, FM, the Family Medical Leave Act. Um, so there was a lot going on. And California has you know, a labor and employment code that's about two inches thick. So sure. they, we went off to training. We went to a trial advocacy training. It was a really great place to um, learn how to be an associate. And as an associate, were they training you to just do all different kinds of law? Or was there something that they kind of were pushing you in a direction toward? Well, I could have done all kinds of law, but I just ended up working very closely with the attorneys in the labor and employment group. Okay. So again, I still did some maritime, interestingly enough, and one of the attorneys on the floor did a number of asbestos cases, so I helped with the litigation and the asbestos cases. But I primarily did labor and employment, so that was, and, and why I loved that practice is it was both litigation so you did litigation and discovery and depositions, but it was also advice, a lot of advice. So it was advising employers about compliance and educating about the implementation of laws in the workplace, drafting policies, you know, answering questions, and that the learning I got there around how to, how to quickly turn a new set of regulations into advice for your client was sort of instrumental in my subsequent practice. And you did some pro bono work as well during that time. I did. I did. T tell us a little bit about that. You know, it, it's it's amazing when you can connect with attorneys who are committed to pro bono. And having, you know, worked and co-chaired the Equal Justice Foundation, which was about lawyers going into public interest law, I sort of felt pretty guilty I was at a big law firm. And, you know, we billed 2,000 hours. We had dinner at the firm. You know, it was, it, was a, it was not public interest law. So I did sort of search out the partners who were doing cases and ended up working with this wonderful partner who did a lot with education. And we did a big education case trying to ensure that I, I you know, I, it was a long time ago, but it was about access for um, immigrant children. Um, and their ability to access education. And I think it was about um, transportation as well as other issues, um, which it was a case that I, ha I had left after um, drafting the, the complaint, but it was ultimately successful. Does the did the firm support that? Say, did they allow you to do that on on firm time, or was that kind of like, okay, after you've billed your 2,000 hours, then you can work on it? Yeah, stuff. it was after you billed your 2,000 hours. <laughs> okay. I mean, I also, I also litigated a case, and I can't even remember what it was about. It was about rulemaking in the prisons. And um, so I litigated a case. I had to go down to Sacramento and, and do a trial. And, you know, it's funny. It was a funny foreshadowing, because I remember going to talk with attorneys for the state of California who represented their Department of Corrections because we were bringing an action, I, it, I think it was on behalf of an inmate, about some kind of rules and, and they, hadn't, they hadn't implemented the rules and we won. It was really fun. But I went to the office building that housed the attorneys for the California Department of Justice, all of whom represented the Department of Corrections. And I didn't think much of it, but it was a whole building full of Department of Corrections <laughs> attorneys. Wow. And that, it was, that was very funny when I ultimately came to New Hampshire and was at the Attorney General's office, and I was the Department of Corrections attorney, and that was one of my clients. I had six other agencies. <laughs> <laughs> so whole building. Yeah, whole building versus, you know. One-sixth of your time. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. So you were in San Francisco for about two years, and yes. then you took a position as the assistant attorney general in the Civil Bureau for the New Hampshire Department of Justice here in Concord. What made you decide to leave San Francisco in private practice to come to work in the state of New Hampshire and for the state of New Hampshire? Right. I, you know, I would love to say it's because I always loved New Hampshire. I did not want to leave San Francisco. Yeah. I had a fantastic job, was being very well trained, loved San Francisco. I had uh, met my husband when in New Orleans and he went to finish up med school and were commuting back and forth. And I thought I had convinced him that doing his training in San Francisco would be wonderful. 
but he was a Dartmouth grad and had always wanted to do his medical training at Dartmouth. And, um, you know, I remember the phone call where I was looking out over the bay and he was saying, can, can, I, can I put in, if I put as number one, you know, Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital as, the, as the, his residency site, he'd get it. Like he knew he would get it. So I did some panic calling of a couple of my friends from Georgetown, many of whom, as it turns out, were from New Hampshire. So I was in the same law school section as Joe LaPlante, who's the now the Chief Justice of the Federal District Court here. And they immediately said, if you go to New Hampshire, you gotta work at the AG's office. It's where everyone starts in New Hampshire. Best place to work. So I called the Attorney General's office and Jeff Howard was the new AG. And I flew out in March for an interview and was offered a position the morning that Rob had to put his choice in for residency picks. So that's how it happened. Okay. So off we came in 1993. Wow. And uh, got married and drove across the country and started work. Nice. So what does the Civil Bureau do? The Civil Bureau, basically, it's the attorneys who represent the state and they do all of the representation of the executive branch agencies in New Hampshire. Okay, so why does the state need representation like that? What, what kind of thing would you, would you be representing the state in? Oh, it, I mean, so I had as my, uh, my area of expertise, I did a lot of the employment, as you might imagine, but I represented Health and Human Services and the State Hospital and the Division of Mental Health and Banking Commission, Labor Commission. It was helping them interpret the laws. So there were constantly questions about what the law means and how they should interpret it and, whether, and how they should implement their rules. And then there was litigation. There was a lot of litigation. So I think within the, the week I got to the attorney general's office, I was in the New Hampshire Supreme Court arguing a case. So the state is sued or uh, frequently, and some of it's administrative issues, administrative law issues. There's an appeal from a decision of an agency. Um, and some of it is there were a number of lawsuits around someone from the state hospital, for example, is released and then hurts somebody. The state sued for releasing the individual, or someone falls at a state park, or you know there are all kinds wow. of ways the state is in litigation. And you know then big cases. We had big cases around Medicaid funding, and there were a lot of different. I mean, there was so many different issues uh, that would arise. Okay, how big an organization is, is the Civil Bureau? The Civil Bureau, so the Attorney General's office are the attorneys for the state. In New Hampshire, different from other places, the, the Criminal Bureau prosecutes all the homicides, and they do all of the criminal appeals. Um, the Civil Bureau represents all of the state agencies on the civil side. Then separately, there's a Department of Transportation that represents just the Department of Transportation because they do a lot of eminent domain and a lot of work around highways and byways and then the Department of Environmental Services. So that's how the, the Attorney General's office is set up. It's small. There are very few attorneys doing all the work for the state, and I don't think the size has changed all that much since I was there that many years ago. What was the work like, especially compared to where you were coming from? You know, I have to say, it was a really, really excellent way to transition to go from private practice, because I treated my agencies and my commissioners like clients. And they really appreciated that. I called them back. Um, <laughs> I answered their questions. I helped them through difficult situations. And so my learning as a private practitioner was very helpful transitioning to the public sector. It was different in the pace. You know, I had a lot of jury trials. I had a lot of judicial trials just in front of the court. I argued at the New Hampshire Supreme Court, I don't know, potentially uh, between 15 and 20 times. So it was common that I was there arguing, which was phenomenal. So it was an incredible way to get litigation experience and sort of have no fear about any issue that might be brought before you. I mean, it still sounds like you were a general. I mean, you were really general. It sounds like you were doing all kinds yes. of different things. When did you start getting interested in issues around healthcare delivery? So... Was that later in your career? Or still? No, it was, it was back then. So I represented the state hospital. I represented the Division of Mental Health and Developmental Services. And there were lots of issues around Medicaid funding and 
institutionalization. It was right after the deinstitutionalization of the state, Laconia State School. So there were a lot of issues around treatment and levels of care and funding. And, you know, a lot of what we did was making sure the agencies were following their proper administrative procedures. So I got involved in healthcare pretty early there and did a lot of cases involved healthcare delivery. You know, I was also married to a physician and I, you know, it's sort of a unique experience when all of your friends are out in the world and you're married to someone who's in the hospital at 48 hour stretches while you're having children. And yeah. so, it, you know, you're, you're, you're tied to the healthcare system really closely when you're in that kind of a situation. Sure. So I, I think it was coming from both sides. Okay. So you served with the Civil Bureau for about four years, and then you left to go back to private practice with the firm of Rath, Young, and Pignatelli here in Concord. What made you decide to leave government service? You know, I um, my mentors, Jeff Howard was one. He was the attorney general who hired me. His advice when he hired me and I was coming from a big law firm was to stay at the AG's office for four years, five years max. Four years was our commitment. Oh, okay. And I took that advice to heart. And I think his advice is really well taken, which is in public service, you know, you offer your skills and your services and whatever assets you have to the public service. If you stay too long, you know, it's sometimes hard to remember what it is you brought to the job, although I have complete respect for those who stay in it. But but the advice I had gotten was go in, offer everything you can, learn everything you can, and then take on private sector, but always keep an eye open for when you can come back. And that's been really good advice because it keeps you very well grounded. Interesting. So what drew you to Rath, Young, and Pignatelli specifically? Um, Rath, Young, and Pignatelli was a fantastic firm. And I didn't really mean to go. I mean, I loved the attorney general's office. I'd had my second child by then, had done a ton of litigation. Litigation was a little bit hard to continue with, with two children and a husband who was still doing his medical training, which lasts forever. Um, So I had a friend who I sang in the Concord Chorale with who was an associate at Rath & Young, and she kept pushing, 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 pushing. And um, Sherry Young was a partner, had started the firm. It was one of the very few firms that had women in senior leadership. And she just kept trying to persuade me to come work with her. And, you know, at first I said no, because I had taken a part-time position at the AG's office. I was working three days a week, and she said, that's fine. You can work three days a week for us, knowing full well that, you know, three days would be four and ultimately five, which is what happened. Uh Um, And then I, oh, that's not true. I'd had two children, so I, uh, one child. So I was, then I was pregnant, and I said to her, you can't take me now. You can't hire me now. You're off the hook. You do not have to hire me now. And she said, no, 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 this is perfect. Come to Rath & Young. You can work for a little bit, have your baby, go out on leave. They gave me a fantastic leave. And then you'll be ready to go. And at that point, I couldn't say no. So um, <laughs> that's where I went. And it, it was an absolutely wonderful place to work. Now, you were the chair of the healthcare practice group. When did that happen? Did that happen right away? Were you hired into that role or or did you kind of evolve into that? No, I evolved into that. I did a lot of employment work there. And and almost immediately after I got there, Annie Custer, Annie McLean Custer, who was one of my colleagues, um, just a phenomenal colleague, she had a government relations issue with a... um, orthopedic practice who had was building a surgical center and had an adverse decision out of the blue at the Certificate of Need Board. And she just dragged me right into it and said, it's administrative law, come help them. And I jumped in. And it was a big case. It was a big controversy. And just from there on out, I was representing physicians and facilities. It came very naturally to me. I had a very, you know, a passion for supporting providers and their ability to, to, to practice and be financially stable and survive in the healthcare world. There were a number of uh, really fun developments in healthcare going on right then. There was uh, the Stark and anti-kickback regulations were becoming more complex. So it was a fun time to be practicing in healthcare. So it's Annie, Annie Custer and I really developed the practice. She did the government relations side. I did the legal side. Um, she was the first chair of the healthcare group, and then I took over. 
And what does it mean to be a chair in a, in a law firm? You know what, we were the, we mentored the associates who were practicing in healthcare. We developed and marketed our business. We basically oversaw that area of practice and made sure we were going in the right direction, up to speed on all the law and, and administrative issues and working our clients the best way we could with the best service we could. What does it take to be a successful healthcare attorney? So it, it is practicing in healthcare, first of all, is multifaceted now. There's sort of no end to what you can do and which direction you can go. At that time, it was really understanding what the practice of medicine meant and, and protecting the practice, whether it be a hospital or facility or professional, from the business side because they were the practitioners. And it was really helping them figure out how do we structure ourselves so we can continue to focus on the patients, which was becoming more and more of a complex business proposition. So. For healthcare, it really was understanding regulatory structures really, really well with incredible attention to detail, understanding the financial world of medicine and healthcare, and putting it all together for your clients. So you were not doing like malpractice kind of work? You know, I did some malpractice, but no, my focus was, we, our firm had a very strong malpractice defense focus through Mike Pignatelli, but my focus was in representing providers and facilities from the corporate Healthcare okay. compliance okay. side. So you were looking at how do you structure your business? Exactly. How do you do uh, administrative kind of things? Not necessarily getting into well, this provider made an error or something like right. that. Right. Okay. Your CV lists you as a shareholder. Uh, what does that mean? So a shareholder is just the modern word for partner. Okay. So at some point, you know, the concept of partnership changed because of liability and it became shareholders. So I was an owner in the firm and had a seat at the table and participated in the firm's financial distribution methodology and, and successes or failures. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how that works for people who are not familiar with how law firms operate and what does it mean to be a partner and kind of explain? Absolutely. So being a shareholder in a law firm is, every law firm is slightly different, the way they, what goes along with being a shareholder. And it and it's really important for, for attorneys who are starting um, at law firms to find out what that means, find out what, what how the attorneys are compensated. Um, it's important to ask. I think that we spend a lot of time trying not to worry about whether it matters, and it does matter. And so being a shareholder simply means you are you are part uh, part of the financial workings of the organization, and you can also vote on the direction of the firm and its governance. So you are part of the board of directors essentially. And our firm had a very one of the reasons why I loved it. It had a financial distribution methodology which I thought was very fair, and it was very fair because basically. Um, your practice area that you developed was what funded you. And yes, you shared expenses with your partners, and yes, you shared some clients with your partners and figured out how to make that work, but it was not based on hours. It was based on what the business was that you brought in and, and accomplished. So you had to work really hard, but if you had a year where something tragic happened and you weren't working as hard, you made less money. It was not, so it was very equitable way to practice together. Um, and I had phenomenal colleagues and we supported each other quite well. But it's important, I think, for lawyers going into the practice to understand how that practice works. It's very important. First of all, if you're going to become a shareholder, you need to have a client base. And you know that means you've got to develop a client base. And that means you've got to develop client base when there are lots of smart, hardworking attorneys doing the same thing. And so you have to somehow figure out how to differentiate yourself and what it is that you offer clients that they'd be willing to pay for um, that make you different in some way. And that's really hard. I think the, the best advice I can give is the advice um, that I got always from one of my favorite clients, which was you have to do what you're passionate about. Because if you're not, you're going to be banging your head against a wall all the time. You really have to love what you do. And that passion will make it easier for you to convince clients. They will see that. They will see that you care about them. You will, they will see that you know more about what their issues are than others. And, and being a good advisor 
to them is really important. So, you know, that's why I loved private practice, because if that means a lot to you, then it works really well. So there's an element of selling here that you're kind of an entrepreneur. You have to go Absolutely. out and find your clients. And so it's not just show up, do some work really hard. It's, it's also a lot of networking and Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have, you know, every client, there's never a day when you're practicing healthcare that is the same. There's never a day where the issues are the same. And that's, that is difficult. I used to love it when someone would call me with an employment problem. (laughs) I'd be like, ah, okay, we got this. Um, So, I mean, that is one thing about healthcare. It's, it's constantly changing and dynamic, which also is what makes it so much fun. So you were at, at RAF, uh, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, how did that event affect your practice? It was wonderful, and I, you know, talked to a lot of my students, which probably translates to other professions. That, you know, if you pick a subject area where the law is constantly changing, it's forever great for you. You're constantly, <laughs> you know, reading new right. regulations and advising clients about new regulations and figuring out how they can morph and meet those new obligations, and that's both fun and rewarding based on the relationship you have with your clients. So at the time, I was also lucky enough to be the uh, legal update designee for the Medical Group Managers Association in, in New Hampshire. So every month I got to update them on what was going on. So I have this long history from like 2007 of of updating around the Affordable Care Act. So I tracked it really closely. So it was a lot of fun to be to watch it all happen and then to be um, right in the middle of implementation was fascinating. And, you know, I was not observing it from any kind of political space. I was observing it from what does this mean for our healthcare clients space, Okay, which was very interesting. So you were with Rath Young and Pignatelli from 1997 to 2013, or about 16 years. But in 2013, you left the firm to be the legal counsel to the governor and senior health policy advisor in the office of the governor, who was and still is Maggie Hassan. Uh, how did you come to this role? You know, I, if I look back t- uh, too deeply, I will think, what was I thinking? Um, I- <laughs> But I wasn't really thinking. I had no intention to leave the law firm. Mm-hmm. I assumed it like you were doing very well. I assumed I would be practicing there for the rest of my life. I had a booming practice. It was going extremely well. You know, she she asked me to be legal counsel. It's you know, it first came through Pam Walsh, who was her chief of staff. And I had never considered doing something like that. And I remember talking with Tom Rath, who's just an amazing mentor, and I said, you know, I think she's going to ask me to be her legal counsel. What do I do? And he said, well, we're a political law firm. You practice in the New Hampshire bar when a governor asks you to serve. You've got to be hard-pressed to say no. I mean, why would you say no? That's what we're here for. That's what we do in New Hampshire. We are you know, stewards of the bar, we're stewards of New Hampshire, you worked at the AG's office, when a governor needs you to serve, then you should say yes and we'll support you. So they were wonderful. The firm was wonderful about it. And, you know, I had every intention to go back there. I still uh, think of myself as part of that law firm. So it, it was a total, it was a totally sudden, spontaneous decision. And I felt like I, she really needed someone who understood healthcare because there was a lot going on in the state at the time. It wasn't just implementing the Affordable Care Act that had to happen. There was a federal USDOJ action against the state for our mental health system. The managed care Medicaid system that was supposed to be in place was a mess. There were a lot, you know, the there was a big Medicaid program for the hospitals that was um, in the middle of a lot of controversy. There was a, just a lot going on um, that was hugely problematic in the area of healthcare. So I said yes. And she's also an, an, an amazing governor and um, lawyer, so the fit was, was really good. She herself is a lawyer. Yes, she is. So the governor has an attorney general. Got, she's got a whole Department of Justice. Why did she also need her own 
legal counsel in our office. We right. don't just tap that organization. So the um, Department of Justice represents the whole state. They are, I was sort of a liaison to them, so it was a, a, a sort of a constant communication, but they don't represent her. I mean, if she were sued, we'd have an attorney there sort of helping, but I was her legal counsel. She had to make decisions every day that she needed counsel and advice on. She had to review pardons. She had to review all the legislation presented to her by the legislature and decide whether to sign it or not. There were multiple legal issues that came up frequently. If I needed help, I would call the DOJ or the Attorney General and we were in constant communication, but he was not her legal counsel. It's actually a position that is articulated in the Constitution for her, that she will have that position. I'm not the sure it's the counsel. Constitution or, or the law, but she it's a mandated, required position for okay. her to have legal counsel. Okay. And I mean, like the, <laughs> I was always somewhat envious because in Massachusetts, I think they had 15, 10 in Massachusetts and five down in D.C. for him. But anyway. <laughs> for the governor. She has one. She yes. Had, and she yes. had you. She has one. Okay. So you weren't just doing health health law. You were, no. you were advising her on the whole scope of, of whatever she was working on that yes. needed legal interpretation or advice. Yes. Well, what kind of, can you give some examples of things you advised her on that uh, kind of stand out in your memory from, from that time? I can't. Okay. Right? Because it's okay. <laughs> confidential. Yeah. Um, I, I will say there were just a lot of different issues that always arose, issues around um, her power and authority in emergencies okay. um, and what her, what her ability um, and, and control is that came up, especially in the Ebola um, uh, okay. outbreak. Issues around, you know, there was an issue around a legislator who had killed some ducks in a parking lot and it turned out, um, you know, she has some, some af affiliated responsibilities with the Nashua Police Commission, very tangential, so that came up, and that was a really interesting, unlikely scenario. Then a lot of obligations around the Affordable Care Act, okay. um, what kind of um, exchange we were going to implement, relationships with state agencies, a lot of issues that would come up around legislation because she might have to sign it. So tracking that and figuring out what can be done around legislation. She was very active in union disputes that were going to threaten the stability of the state. So at the nuclear power plant, there was a union dispute. Then there was a big issue with Market Basket. Also issues around all of the litigation that impacted the state. So the mental health lawsuit, she was integral in helping resolve that. And there was a big issue at a, at a medical facility that she was very much involved in, setting up commissions to investigate. So she set up the Managed Care Commission. We also she was instrumental in Medicaid expansion. So drafting the legislation and figuring out and interfacing with the federal authorities around what was possible or not possible and, and working through the very complicated issues around the, the benefit to the newly eligible population under the Affordable Care Act was, took a huge amount of leadership from her and our office to implement. So in that example, you said drafting legislation. So did you have a significant role in, in the process of drafting it? Well, I would say we were integrally involved in. You were, okay. okay. Yes. Why'd she pick you? You know, I never asked her that. I, I, um, I think we had had a long-standing connection um, when she was a senator, and I'd always been very supportive of her. We were, so we knew each other, and I don't know. My experience in healthcare, okay. um, my commitment to public service from previously, it was a good fit. Yeah. So you served the governor in this capacity for about two years, uh, at which time you came to the University of New Hampshire, where you currently have dual appointments in the School of Law and the College of Health and Human Services, which is, happens to be the college where I teach. Why was it the right time for you to leave the governor's office? You know, it, it, it harkened back to the advice from the Attorney General, I approached, her. when I said yes to the governor, I said I will do two years. There was no way I could commit to more than two years. It was, um, I could sort of approached it like the political Peace Corps. Um, and then I stayed a little bit longer, so I did, I went through two budgets, and that was another big thing 
the, the governor obviously is responsible for is drafting a budget. Um, so, so all of the legislative drafting that goes with that fell on the legal counsel. So I knew that two years was all I could muster. It was a 24-7 job. That's, I dedicated myself to that. I was not even going to think about whether it was the, what it meant in my life to give up everything because I knew it was going to be two years. So that in my mind was what I had taken on. Yeah. Um, you know, I could have stayed for much longer, but at, I had, one of the things that happened when we were trying to implement Medicaid expansion, which is now the New Hampshire Health Protection Program, is we, it was very, very, very new. And we were trying to figure out public-private option. And we did not have anyone uh, we could go to who was not representing a client with an interest around public policy matters involving healthcare. And I found that to be a little bit frustrating. I thought, you know, we really should have a legal focus at one of our healthcare institutions. And so I think the dean here at the time was a huge advocate of that, as was Ned Helms. And so they wanted to bring health law into health policy. And it, um, health law was now the law school and the university were now under one roof. So it made for a unique opportunity. I actually delayed. I mean, they really wanted someone to start a year before. But, and they wanted me to take that on. What is your position at the School of Law? What it, to, can you tell us a little bit about what it is you do on a day-to-day basis here? Yeah, so I am, I'm, I'm blessed to be a, a little bit of a hybrid. I have a hat and a number of rings here, which is a wonderful opportunity for me. The question is keeping, keeping them all afloat or on my head or at the same time is, is interesting. I am, my obligation to the law school is I'm here 50% of the time. And I am tasked with starting and overseeing a certificate in health law and policy program. So as part of that, the certificate in health law and policy is a certificate for JDs. And there's a certain required number of courses they need to take in healthcare. So along with developing the certificate program, I also developed the courses that make up the certificate program, uh, two of which I teach. Um, So I'm a professor teaching in health law here at the law school as well. So developing that program and helping the students and and making sure they have connections to the outside world. And we have a wonderful career office as well as a residency placement office. And we've worked very closely together to make sure the students who are pursuing healthcare have contacts for summer jobs and residencies during the year and also connections for careers subsequent. So I've developed the curriculum to really track the American Health Lawyers Association curriculum, Mm -hmm. which you really need to go practice in healthcare. And we're trying to make sure they are ready to practice. And we're also trying to develop more of a connection with our intellectual property side. We have a very strong intellectual property program here at the law school. And it's really, there are a lot of startups and high-tech companies who are in the healthcare space. So we're trying to figure out how to nice. train our healthcare attorneys to help in that regard as well. The certificate, is it, is it a thing that students who are here earning their JD will typically pursue at the same time, or is it something that people come back and do after they've graduated? Um, right now, it's for what they pursue at the same time. We are looking for ways to make it accessible to subsequent JDs um, and also to other master's programs. What special considerations are there when teaching health law? How is it different? So, I mean, health law is not a, health law is a practice area. It's a, it's an industry. Okay. So it's different. I mean, contracts are important for health law. Commercial law is important for health law. Antitrust is important for health law. So it really is pulling together all the different types of legal training necessary to implement in an industry. So what I have to do is make sure the students understand the industry and can therefore apply the the more generalized areas of law that they've learned to that industry. And, you know, I also my the other half of my job is working with the institute. Okay. So it's and they're an applied research institute. And it's been wonderful for me because it's the entire other area of 
healthcare from what I saw in private practice, where I was very facility professional focused. And the Institute really does some incredible work around population health and patient-centered care and thinking around the delivery of, of services from a much more public health standpoint. So this is the Institute for Health Policy and Practice. Just say yes. So one of the things I make sure, not to complicate everything, but my, my, my health law half is teaching at the law school and developing the certificate program. But I'm also the health law mind and expertise now for the Institute. And that means my health law students can have access to some of the, the programs and projects we're working on at the Institute. And I'm hopefully bringing the two worlds together a little bit more. Because you know one of the things you learn, especially in medicine, is how important interdisciplinary learning and teaching really is. So students here in Concord are now having an opportunity to work on projects with IHPP from... That's uh, the hope, yes. That's the hope. Nice. Okay. What do you see are the most important policy issues uh, you're dealing with in either of your roles now? So I think, you know, one of the most important things going on in healthcare is, uh, since the Affordable Care Act, how to deliver care in a more uh, efficient, rational way while maintaining the quality. So that's sort of a, a description of what we're trying to achieve with payment reform. So we're doing a lot of projects around payment reform. It's a sort of broad category, but how do you make the system work better and more efficiently for the patients we're serving? So I'm doing a number of projects on that. Sort of as part of that, we're uh, working on, and I had students integral in helping with, a guide for consumers around healthcare coverage for mental health and addiction, and also the mental health parity law and how that applies and, and benefits patients. We're working on a lot of issues around confidentiality as it pertains to the integrated care delivery and really trying to work on how the system can have mental health and addiction and healthcare services all sort of seamlessly um, provided to patients in more of an integrated way. So here, I'm going to ask a personal ask for me. What advice would you give to professors like myself who teach in health management? What kind of where should I be putting my emphasis and where should folks who teach the management side be putting their emphasis when it comes to, to law? So I think there are two uh, really important issues. One is understanding compliance around quality and regulation. And that's critically important for anybody going into healthcare is really understanding what compliance means in this world where payment is, is, is contingent upon meeting quality objectives. And so compliance takes a lot of forms, but that's extremely important. Uh, the other is understanding the, f the, the, the healthcare industry from the financial perspective. What makes it tick? What is insurance? How do, how do we actually deliver this product to the patient? Um, and what does it take to get it there? Because I think sometimes if we lose sight of, of the way it all works, we can try and make changes that aren't sustainable or you know you squeeze one side of the balloon and it comes out the other so it's really important for them to understand sort of the industry from the insurance and payment perspective because that that's what everyone's grappling with right now let's uh, transition and talk a little bit about leadership you've been a leader both as a, a, a manager as well as kind of a, a leader in the sense of um, influencer uh, a lot of your career what would you say is your leadership philosophy? You know, I, I think leadership is something that you earn as you pursue your passion with excellence and determination. And it's something that has to grow up with you. And it takes many different forms. And I, I, you know, I don't have a prescription for it. I just know if you are passionate about what you do and you dedicate yourself to doing it, you will be a leader in some way. And I, I think what's most important, especially for young, eager lawyers, is to remember that you can't, you can't dictate how you will lead. It, it's got to flow from, what you care, from dedicating yourself to what you care about and keeping your opportunities open and taking them when they offer themselves to you. And remembering that the leadership has to fit with your personality and your your professional passion. What's the difference between 
leadership as with authority, where you're actually a supervisor with formal authority, and being in, in a leader who influences without direct authority? So I think they're two different things, and both of them are hard. I think leadership with supervisory authority is one where you need to spend a lot of time caring for those you're supervising. And you really are captain not of yourself, but of a ship. I think with regard to influence, you have to be patient and careful with how you use that influence. And I think it can be used in all different kinds of ways, and picking what works best is, is a critical, critical piece. But it's also incredibly fun to be able to look around and figure out, okay, what are the problems here, and how are we going to fix them? And how are we going to make things better? And how are we going to use you know, the years of experience and the years of, of, of sort of political capital to make things work? How did, you, how did you learn your skills in influence? You know, I think it was from years of, of public-private service. And I think it was a combination of the two. It was having really strong mentors and watching the way they do it in a variety of different ways. I mean, between Sherry Young and... Tom Rath and Annie Custer and uh, the governor, all very different forms. Jeff Howard, I had some incredible mentors who influenced New Hampshire in very significant ways, mostly subtle. You know, there are a lot of people who make huge change and are not the ones who are the elected officials. And that's one of the things I've loved, I learned to appreciate in New Hampshire that there are a lot of unsung heroes who have a, a great degree of influence and they use it wisely and carefully. And um, after you've been around long enough, you know who they are and a lot can happen. You've mentioned mentors a couple of times. Sounds like you've had some really good people who have provided you that, have, have performed that role in your life. Can you talk about what a good mentor does? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a good mentor, first of all, I think that everyone finds their own mentor in their own way. I don't think anyone can adopt somebody else's mentor, if you know what I mean. I mean, I think it, it comes out of uh, being in the right place at the right time for each other in terms of what you're teaching and what you're there to learn. And I think a good mentor is there to be a guide and support through thick and thin and to really offer a way of being a professional that uh, you find um, also works for you, and to make it fun. I mean, I think every mentor I've had, I've had a lot of fun with, and it's never about them. It's always about the success of our client or the success of the issue or, or the success of someone else you're working with. It's never about them, and that's what makes a good mentor. Have these mentors always been supervisors, or have they been people outside of your immediate chain of command? I would say they've typically been people I've worked with. With or for? Or um, both? I would say both. Okay. Yeah. I would say both. So finding a mentor, how did you go about finding those mentors? Sometimes you were working for them. How else have you? Right. Well, I mean, I would say it, it, it came early. I would say Rhea Zobel was, was an incredible mentor for me. Hmm. And it was happenstance that I found her. I have been lucky to have, you know, for a long time worked in the legal profession. And, you know, I would say that also in New Hampshire, our bar is very close and it's a wonderful support. So I would not call them mentors, but I've had support structures um, throughout our legal community. Attorneys who I used to be on the other side with have become some of my closest friends and People supporters. People maybe litigated against? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, over time, I wouldn't necessarily call them mentors, but they're absolutely instrumental in, you know, my ability to put one foot in front of the other. So, and, and that in that way, we are really blessed to, to practice in New Hampshire because we have a bar that is very collegial and very respectful. And you also can't, you know, there's, there's nothing you can do without being held accountable for it. And there's no one, nothing anybody else can do without being held accountable for it. And so it's really wonderful to have that collegiality. Is that because New Hampshire's a relatively small state? Yeah. Okay. So I it's not so. true everywhere. It is definitely not true everywhere. Okay. Definitely not true. Do you see yourself as a mentor now for, for other junior leaders, either attorneys coming up or 
other people? Absolutely. I hope so. It's been wonderful watching some of the attorneys I've worked with when they were, you know, very early in their career, just sort of blossom and uh, go off to various places and, and uh, really find their, their calling. So hopefully, I mean, that's one of the wa- reasons I came here too, was to help make sure that, you know, lawyers and law students who are, law students who are becoming lawyers who may not have the same passion for practicing, at least get some, some flair and some inspiration about how, uh, what a wonderful profession it can be. What do you do for people who you see as mentees? What do you try to do for them? So- you know, try to figure out what, what makes them tick, what they are passionate about. Try and have them not be afraid of the choices that they're going to have to make and not, not feel like what, you know, the step they take tomorrow is going to, you know, dictate uh, the step they take five years from now and sort of look at life in five-year chunks and, and realize there are lots of opportunities you can pursue and, and redirect later, but don't look back. Jump in with both feet, make the most of the decision you make. That's the most important thing. It's not what decision you make, it's that when you make it, uh, you put both feet you know, in the water and, and, and make the most of it. Um, you've, ha- you've had the opportunity of working in a number of different organizations and you've also provided advice and, and services to a, a large number of organizations, give you some insight into organizational culture. What is organizational culture and why is it important? You know, I, I would say organizational culture, I, I, I um, you asked the question about mentors and I, uh, thinking about organizational culture, I learned so much from my clients. You know, I represented, and that was probably the hardest thing about going to the governor's office, absolutely, was leaving my clients who I'd worked with for years through and watching the way the different physicians organizations and hospitals worked as organizations taught me a phenomenal amount. So I, I learned much more from their organizations than from the ones I worked in. And the organizations that really respected governance and respected listening uh, were the ones that worked the best without fail. And were not top down, but were strong in terms of their respect for, for, for unified governance and for the process to get there were the ones that were most successful. What book has most influenced your professional thinking about healthcare delivery and or healthcare policy? You know, it's funny. I read that question and I could not come up with an answer on a book. I do religiously read health affairs. Okay. So I would say the articles in health affairs are what offer me the most sort of sustaining, thought-provoking information. So I, I, I really love the, the writing there. And then in terms of I, just day to day, I read the Kaiser news, which is terrific. Um, I, I really love the various books that track the ACA's implementation. I find those really fun to read because they're already historic. Um, <laughs> and you were working at the, the front the edge. The bitter of those, pill so is fun to read. The bitter pill um, is that a, a book or yeah, a, okay. it's a book. Okay. So, I, you know, I, I I tend not to read a lot of books about healthcare. Okay. I tend to read a lot of articles about healthcare. Okay. More timely. More timely. Okay. But I also highly recommend that everybody read things that have nothing to do with what they practice. Was a. I, I, you know, I just think you got to get your head out of it at times. And um, there's nothing like a good book that has nothing to do with what you're doing during the day to just take you to a different place and calm you down and put things in perspective. Okay. So highly recommend that. Great. What advice would you give to young folks, young attorneys, or maybe healthcare administrators who are thinking about a career in healthcare today, if they're listening what, what would you recommend they, what kind of education, if, if they want to try to understand health law, what should they be doing? So I think, you know, it really depends. I, I think some exposure to health law, I know that there are a lot of integrated curriculum that are available. And I think really understanding uh, the ACA offers us a unique opportunity to understand the delivery system by examining the ACA and the different as- facets of it. So really understanding the delivery system from a global perspective as well as a micro perspective. And then 
understanding, I think spending a little bit of time in sort of a health delivery setting and, and realizing what our providers are doing every day also makes a huge difference because science has developed to such an extent, we humans haven't. I mean, we're the same, same as we've always been with the same problems we've always been, but science has just taken off and it's really changed our expectations uh, with regard to our professionals and made their lives a lot more complicated. So I think both understanding the actual hands-on delivery from the professional perspective and then the macro, you know, in terms of what the financial delivery system is makes a huge difference. I know that people are getting their silos and they don't, you know, the, the, the nurse practitioner who just wants to know what medication levels are appropriate for this presentation doesn't think that, you know, the Medicaid program and how it works matters. But I think it does. I do think that we all have to have a greater understanding of the delivery system as a whole to really make the change that's necessary. And I guess I would say anybody going into healthcare, it is a phenomenally wonderful area to go into because there's so much need for change. It's never gonna go away. We have to take it on um, so that it doesn't crumble. And so there's a lot of hard work ahead. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate this. Thank you. Great talking to you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.